Good morning. My topic this morning, if you haven't guessed it yet, is forgiveness. I'm going to uh, share with you uh, from a, a few texts. So when I get to... Actually, uh, uh, Webster defines a few as three or more. So when I get to the third text, you, you might start thinking, this is it, he's at the last text. It's a few or more. So, so uh, brace yourself, prepare yourself there. Forgiveness. Um, not... Thank you. you. Missing part of my Bible. Um, I, I, I did see a, a, a TV show once where the preacher had a rubber band around his Bible and it was in a box and all the pages were loose. And I thought, why in the world does he not get a new Bible? Now I understand. It would take me way too long to move all the notes from my old Bible to the new one. I would like to start this morning uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 8 where John left off last week. The topic is forgiveness. This is God's forgiveness for us, not our forgiveness for one another. Although if you understand God's forgiveness for you, the other will no doubt find its application. I would like to begin this morning in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 8. I'm going to look at, very quickly, verse 8 through 10, and then verse 12. Verse 8 says, For finding fault with them, that is, with the nation of Israel, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their, into their minds. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For a long time, I knew the Bible had two parts to it. It has the Old Testament and the New Testament. I didn't understand the significance of that. It does flow as a continuous story. Until I came to the point of understanding that the Greek word for testament is the same word for covenant. And really, the point is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's more than the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they are the principal focus. The Old Covenant was the covenant given to the nation of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. The New Covenant, as we just read here, unlike the old one where the commandments were written in stone, God says in the new one, He puts them in our minds and He writes them on our heart. And the reason for this, this text doesn't develop this completely, but the reason for this is that God has chosen a people for Himself. But they cannot save themselves. They cannot make the right decisions concerning God. God gave them a law, the Mosaic Law, that proved that. They could not obey. 
In Romans, we're told that a person has to die to the law in order to be able to live to God. And that's because the law provokes sin in people. That's the way man is. He is so lost in his sinfulness. But God has determined, after showing man the uselessness of trying to live up to a standard in order to measure up to God's standard, then God shows that He is a merciful God by giving a covenant that does not require man's effort and man's work, but a covenant where God puts the work needed in man's minds and in man's hearts. In verse 12 he says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The thing about the new covenant that is the kicker, the thing about it that marks it so different from the old covenant, from the Mosaic covenant, is that the blood sacrifice of the new covenant actually covers and removes sin. It doesn't just temporarily cover as the old covenant did, but it pays for it in full. It removes it. And that's why God can say, I will remember their sin no more. In Hebrews 10.4, he says that the, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. None of those sacrifices in the Old Testament could never take away sins. The only thing they did was give a picture of what God was going to do with His blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ and taking away sins. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him, that is Jesus, that's who He has been speaking about up to this point. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Him we have redemption through His blood. When I was a young child, when I was a young child growing up, uh, my mother shopped for her groceries in a grocery store uh, that had the uh, brand name Safeway. And an interesting thing about Safeway was that when you purchased your uh, goods, uh, in addition to uh, getting change for the money that you gave when you paid, you also got what was called green stamps. These were SNH green stamps. The point of these stamps was that you would collect them and you would get empty books and you would wet the back of these stamps and you would glue them into the books and you would fill these books from front to back with S&H green stamps. There was a redemption store where you could redeem these green stamps. You could also get a catalog which showed all the things you could get for those green stamps. And I remember sitting home with my mom looking through the catalog at all the things we could get for free. In a sense, it was for free. Uh, we had earned the green stamps by purchasing the groceries, and now we could take those books full of green stamps, see how many were required for the item we wanted, and take them down to the redemption center and turn them in and say, we want this, and we would point to the item, and they would look and see, yep, that's the right number of green stamps, 
And it, you redeemed it. That was called the redemption center. You paid the price that was necessary, the number of stamps, to get what you wanted, the item that you wanted. Redemption is paying the price that is needed to get something. Verse 7 of Ephesians 1 says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. Not through green stamps, through His blood. It took the blood of Jesus Christ. That price is what it took to redeem us out of slavery to sin. And a beautiful thing here, and this is the focus for this morning, a beautiful thing here, it says that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He defines redemption as forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses is just a fancy word for sins. Forgiveness. Forgiveness for our sins. A believer in Jesus Christ, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a sharer in the new covenant, in the, in the new covenant relationship with God, you are forgiven for your sins. For how many of your sins? Well, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, this is the third text. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says, thir- I'm sorry, 13, 2.13 says, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's the description of you before you were redeemed, when you were in that condition, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He didn't miss any. They're all covered. All of them. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, who has trusted in God for redemption, for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, if there is any thought in your mind whatsoever about the idea of, well, perhaps I can accept that most of my sins have been covered, but you know that one thing? I just don't know how God could forgive me for that one. Dismiss that idea. We are forgiven for all of our sins. In fact, if you think about it, when the Apostle Paul says that in him we have redemption for sins, I mean we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, he is defining redemption as forgiveness of sins. Do you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you could no more be in need of forgiveness of sins than you could be in need of redemption? If you have redemption, you have forgiveness of sins. All of your sins. Past, present, and future. That even includes sins you have not yet committed. That trips some people up. It even includes the sins not yet committed. Some people struggle with that. If you struggle with that, then consider this. When Jesus died for your sins, they were all in the future. And yet, they're all covered. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. 
I went to Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholic School, school through the eighth grade. In Roman Catholic dogma, there are two kinds of sins. There are venial sins and there are mortal sins. There are lesser and greater sins. Venial sins can be forgiven, according to Roman Catholic dogma. Venial sins can be forgiven by a simple act of repentance. This is often done through confession to a priest. It does not have to be that way. It can be just between you and God, but it's often done between you and a priest. The other kind of sin they have are mortal sins. These are the weightier sins. Mortal sins must be confessed to a priest in order to be forgiven. So much so that do you know that in Roman Catholicism you can be a fantastic Catholic all your life, do all of the things prescribed, believe all of the things that are taught, continually go to confession, go to Mass, receive the communion, be constant in your Catholicism. And yet, if you die having committed a mortal sin that was not confessed to a priest, you go straight to hell. That's why in Roman Catholicism, the sacrament of extramunction or last rites is critically important where a priest comes to visit you at your deathbed and you have an opportunity to unload. For years, I went to confession. It was on Saturdays. I lived two blocks from the church. I walked. The confessional, if you have never seen it in person, it's usually three boxes. The middle one could be bigger than the one on either side. They're not much bigger than a, an old telephone booth, about three or three and a half foot square, each one of them. The middle one is where the priest goes. He's in there. You go in there any time on Saturday. He's in there. You may not see anybody going in and out of anything, but he's in there. You go in to confess your sins. You choose one side or the other. You go into the confessional. You go into the little box on that side. You kneel down. A little sliding window opens, and you recite some predetermined recital, and then you list your sins, and then he gives you your penance which is a certain number of Hail Marys and, and Lord's Prayers that you are to go over the altar, come out of the confessional, go over the altar, kneel down, recite all of those, and those combined with the absolution that He has given you takes those sins away. So I would do that week after week after week, year after year. And on the way home from there, which was about two blocks, I would get about halfway home and I would pass by an apartment building where there were kids in there who I knew and some of them were on the street. And I would stop and we would visit for a minute. Jokes would be told. Words would be said. And then I'd head home and I would get about three quarters of the way home and I would realize, oh, i got to go back to the confessional. Eventually, I did come to faith in Jesus Christ. It happened through reading His Word. In spite of what I had been taught in Roman Catholicism, I read the Word and I understood it. I understood the issue was not the confessional. The issue was trust in Jesus Christ. And quietly in my heart I did that. I put my trust in Him. And guess what? I am never again going back to that confessional.
because all of my sins are already forgiven. He redeemed me. It's, it's, it's done. And it can't be improved on. Now turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. I have two more texts. 2 Peter chapter 1 is the first of the two. Right after Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm after one verse in this chapter, but I'm going to start at the beginning to set that verse up. 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This would include you. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, this would include you. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have received a faith. Do you know that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you did not generate it? You did not come up with it. You did not muster it up. You did not find the, the wherewithal or the sense with to come to the point of realizing I have to have faith in Jesus. I'm going to, try, I'm going to have faith in Him. He says, who have, to those who have received a faith. In fact, Paul agrees with that in Romans 12.3 when he says, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think of yourself so as to have sound judgment as each one of us has received a portion of faith. What faith you have has been given to you by God. This is a glorious God who doesn't wait for us to come up with the faith required, the faith needed. If He had waited, no one would have it. But He gives it to those whom He chooses to give it to. And then He says in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is sort of a a prayer, a wish or a prayer to those who have received this faith. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Have you ever been at a point in your life when you thought about your spiritual life, the place you're at spiritually, and you have thought to yourself, if only, and fill in the blank, that is, if only I had this, or if only I had more of this, uh, then I would be able to live the way that I know that God wants me to live. <coughs> this verse says, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You already have it. There is nothing that has come up short in what is in you through faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you are coming up short on in order to live a life of godliness. You have got it. Nothing is missing. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Verse 4, For by these, that is by His glory and excellence, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them 
you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Before faith in Jesus Christ, you were in the clutches of sin. You were in the clutches of this sinful world. You had a sinful nature which compelled you to give yourself to sin. Granted, some do it more than others, but uh, nonetheless, the compulsion is there for all. But when you came to faith in Christ, verse 4 here says that through His glory and excellence, He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. You no longer have that old condition that you had. You now have a divine nature. This is new. You did not have that before. And you have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is a complete turnaround. If you were to know a person and they're not saved and then you're away from them for a while, you don't see them for a while, and while you're away from them, they become saved and then you see them again at some point and become reacquainted, you are going to be brought to the point of having to say, you know what, you're not the same person you used to be. You've changed. And that's the point. This happens to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 begins an exhortation. It says, Now, for this very reason also, that is in view of all that I have just told you, all that I have just said, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, it does take thinking, it does take choices, it takes diligence. But you have everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. So don't begin for a minute to say, but I don't have what it takes. You've got it. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Be morally Excellent. Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Supply knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. I have not met a believer yet, no matter how mature or immature that believer is, I have not met one yet who does not want these qualities to be in their life and increasing. They're not always there, but they, they're wanted, they're desired. And the reason to desire them could easily be spelled out in the next verse, in verse 8. It says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think any believer in their right mind wants to be found useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Useless or unfruitful. What, what, what could that lead to? Useless or unfruitful. There is a story about a few guys that Jesus gave some, I mean a man gave some talents to and... and uh, uh, when he comes back after being gone, the checks on the investments that were done, and the guy was given one talent, he buried it. He didn't invest it at all. He didn't put it to use. He gets it removed from him. Useless.
1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about leaders in the church who do a lot of serving. And yet, in the end, because of the way that they have lived, everything they have is going to be taken from them. And they may be saved, but it's only as though through fire. They will have nothing to show for it. I don't think any believer, no matter how immature he is even, in his right mind, is going to say, I don't care about having anything to show for it. I think we all want to be able to stand before God, no matter how mature or immature we are, and we want to hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in, and He's prepared a place for you. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody wants to be unfruitful. Now, verse 9 is the verse I'm after. The next verse. If you don't have these qualities, here's the problem. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Period. I'd be willing to bet that if you gave a dozen different preachers a, 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 a sermon title, and that title, they all got the same title, and that title is, if you are not quite living up to snuff as a believer, here's the problem. This is what you need to do. There's your sermon title, Pastor, run with it. If you gave that to 12 pastors, I would be willing to bet you would get 12 very varied sermons. But you give that title to the apostle, you give that, that title of a lesson to the apostle Peter, who is going to write according to the divine inspiration of God himself. And here's what he has to say in verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. That's it. That's the whole problem. You see, this forgiveness that we receive in this new covenant, this forgiveness that we receive in redemption, this, for, this forgiveness that we receive in full that covers all of the sins in our life is designed to have an effect on our being, on our psyche, on our minds and on our hearts in such a way that it will provide a motivation to live godly unlike any other thing could possibly motivate. In fact, given this topic under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is the only thing Peter says is missing if those qualities are not there. Blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification. It's not that you're not forgiven. It's that you don't understand your forgiveness or you have forgotten about it or you have minimalized it. You have marginalized it. It's not front and center in your thinking. It's not what makes you tick each day as you get up in the morning and go to bed at night. It's the only thing that God has designed to make it happen. It's a thankfulness from the Spirit that wells up within you for the knowledge that you have been forgiven for all 
of your sins. Now let's see how this worked out with somebody else. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. This is my last text for this morning. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to begin in verse 36. We are going to read about a man by the name of Simon. Simon is a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a very devout, particularly honorable, well, perfectly clothed gentleman of the synagogue. These are the spiritual leaders that are revered and adored. This particular Pharisee's name is Simon. He's inviting Jesus to come to his house for a meal. I do not believe, based on anything in the text, that Simon believes in Jesus Christ, trusts in Him, understands Him. In fact, in his religious piety, his purpose in having Jesus over is probably not good. His purpose in having Jesus over is probably to try to find something in Him that he can accuse him of. That he can trip him up with. But he's a cordial man, externally in some ways. He invites Jesus. Hey, come on over for supper. Jesus comes over. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So there they are at the table. The invitation was made. Jesus accepted. They're at the table. That means they're eating. The meal is going on. Verse 37. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. The idea here is an immoral woman. A woman who has a reputation uh, for certain sinfulness. Everyone knows it. It's common knowledge. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. She decided to invite herself to the Pharisee's house. Now, What's going to happen after this, as we read along here, is we're going to see some interaction between Jesus and Simon concerning this woman who's doing some strange things in Simon's house. What's interesting is nobody ever made an attempt to stop this woman. I guarantee you if I had invited guests and someone came in who was not invited, There would be some kind of confrontation. It might be cordial and friendly and polite and whatnot, but they're not just going to walk in and enter into the things that are going on in the house without some kind of clarification happening. It doesn't appear there was any kind of clarification attempted to be had in this situation. The woman's not invited. She's not part of the family. And yet she comes in. Behold, there was a woman, verse 37, in the city who was a sinner, a morally impure woman, and, and, and known for that. 
And when she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him, that is behind Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. This is a scene. This person did not come in inconspicuously, sheepishly. This person came in, well known for who she is, recognized, came in with something in her hand. It's a vial of perfume. And she proceeds to open that thing up. And she's crying and she's dropping tears on Jesus' feet. She's wiping his feet with her tears. She's anointing them with the perfume. The house is smelling up by this time. It may be a good smell, but it's strong. Simon still doesn't attempt to stop her. Nobody attempts to stop her. In fact, all we get from Simon is this in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he's thinking, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. That's a cold moment. He has tolerated this woman doing what she has done in this house. I suspect for one reason. He thinks this is going to play into his overall scheme, and that is to find something he can accuse Jesus of. He doesn't say anything out loud. He doesn't speak to the woman. He doesn't say to Jesus anything. He just says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to Simon, did you catch that? Jesus answered. Jesus knows what the man is thinking. And he responds to what he's thinking. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Something to say to you. Simon replied, Say it, teacher. That's the first thing we get out of Simon since this woman entered the house. The first thing we get out of Simon since this woman entered the house. Say it, teacher. And so Jesus says it. He's got something to say to Simon, and he says it, beginning in verse 41. He says, A certain money lender had two debtors. So here's a guy with money, and he earns interest on lending money, and he's lent money to a couple of different people, two debtors who owe him money now because he lent them money. One owed 500 denarii. By the way, a denarii is equivalent to a day's wage at that point in time. So one man owed as much as it would take to earn in 500 days. The other one owed 50 denarii, as much as it would take to pay back in 50 days. By the way, even working with that lesser debt the 50 days if you owe something that's equivalent to what it takes you to earn in 50 days I'd venture to say it's going to take you quite a long long time to pay that back 
So the, the debtor has lent money to two men, 500 to one, 550 to the other. In verse 42, he says, And when they were unable to repay, that is both of them, neither one could repay. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. He says, I forgive you your debt. You do not have to pay me. And then Jesus asks Simon, Which of them therefore will love him more? Which one, Simon? Which one's going to love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He's a cautious man. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He's given himself an exit door, just in case he's wrong. It's a logical guess. I, su I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus says to him, you have judged correctly. That man's going to love more. He was forgiven 500 denarii as opposed to the 50. He's going to love more. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, I want you to catch this. Jesus now turns to look at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. He's not looking at Simon, but he's talking to Simon. But he's looking at the woman. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Jesus is saying, Simon, your reception of me has been cold, it has been patronizing, and it has been discourteous. You have not given me the standard common greeting that is given to invited guests. And then he says in verse 47, For this reason, Simon, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The woman was forgiven completely. We are not told how, when, or where she came to faith in God and understood Jesus, understood what his purpose was. But it's obvious from the text that this woman's appreciation for the forgiveness that has been given to her this overwhelming sense of appreciation is being directed to Jesus. He's the one that made it happen. She knows it. He's the one that's about to make it happen in her life by His going to the cross and dying. She understands this. She's anointing Him in thankfulness for all that is being done. For this reason, verse 47, I say to you, her sins, which are many, she knows her sinfulness well, you don't begin to understand your sinfulness, Simon. Your understanding of yourself is wrong. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, and he knows this. He can emphatically say this, that her sins, which are many, have been forgiven 
because he says, for she loved much. What she has done to me here in this house has been nothing but pour out affection upon me and showing love for me. And, and that is manifested, that is manifesting, showing the fact that she understands she has been forgiven. She's, she's outpouring herself and all that she has in thankfulness and gratitude. And she's willing to do it at any cost. She goes into a man's house uninvited. Not just any man. A spiritual leader of the day. She was bound to get in trouble. She knew that, I'm sure. Yet she loved much, for she had been forgiven much. And then he says at the end of verse 30, 47, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he finally turns his attention back to her probably. I don't know, he may still be looking at Simon. But I can't help but think he's probably turned to her at this point. It doesn't make a difference for the application. But he says to her, your sins have been forgiven. I want to suggest something to you. When Jesus says, her sins which are many have been forgiven for she loved much, but he was forgiven little loves little. I want to suggest to you that it's quite possible to be a believer in Jesus Christ, have redemption through faith, have redemption, have forgiveness of sins, that's the definition of redemption, and yet not understand that, or not appreciate that, or it's possible to minimalize that, marginalize that, and instead be overwhelmed with your own shortcomings, instead of with the knowledge that it's been covered. It's been paid for. Forgiveness is complete. It's possible to be completely forgiven for sins and yet forget that. That's what Peter said. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification. It's possible to forget it. It's possible to lose sight of it. And I guarantee you, according to the Word of God, that if you do lose sight of that, you can expect some kind of spiritual degeneration, some kind of not seeing fruit in your life. Because the fuel that's going to make it happen is simply remembering forgiveness. There is no more important point in your life than at the moment when God's forgiveness for you was put upon you. And if you'll keep sight of it, the Word of God guarantees that you're going to be living godly After I became saved, but before I got plugged into a believing church, I was in Houston, living in Houston, in my mom's place. And one night I was walking down Westheimer, probably somewhere in the vicinity of Kirby. And I remember thinking about how I've been trying to tell people about what I've been reading in the Word of God, and no one's accepting it, no one's believing it. People are putting their hand out, in a sense, and saying, I'm glad you found something that's doing you some good, but don't insist that we have a similar relationship or, or understanding or experience. My response would usually be something like, I'm not insisting anything, but I've been reading the Word of God, and it's insisting. But nobody was accepting. Nobody was appreciating. Nobody was recognizing the truth of what I was sharing. I began to question myself and wonder, what is going on with me? 
I mean, I know, I've heard of people who are locked up in psycho wards and think that they're Jesus Christ. You know, is that happening to me? I don't think so. I don't want to be Jesus. I just want to know Him. And then I said, God, I don't care. I do not care if they want to label me as nuts and lock me up in a psycho ward and throw away the key. I will not let go of what I have laid a hold of because it means too much to me in here. I don't have to go back to the confessional. It's covered. It's done. I'm sticking with this. Next year, I will have been a believer for 50 years. It was in 1970 that I came to know the Lord, right after high school. One of those people that I tried to share my faith with back then, and they said, don't, 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 just back off. They said, this is a fad you're going through. Just a fad. Three, five years, going to wear off. I said to her, if I'm still believing in five years, will you believe? You know. Well, it's been 50 years. Now I don't just believe. Now I know why I believe. There is no single thought more overwhelming, more compelling, more driving to me than the knowledge that all my sins have been forgiven and yours have been too in Christ. And my prayer this morning is that to whatever degree you have bathed yourself with that knowledge and with those thoughts in the past that you will multiply that uh, in the future. And you will know joy. You will know joy from it. By the way, God does not promise a bed of roses for those who know Him, for those who understand forgiveness and they have joy in their hearts as a result of that. Don't, don't look for things to all go right in your life because you finally decided... I'm believing in this forgiveness. In fact, he promises those who follow him that they're going to have trials, tribulation, and persecution. I don't understand why, but that's the way God lined it up. That's okay. It may crush me at the moment, but I can handle that because I've got forgiveness. And I know where I'm going. I know who I belong to. And nothing else could be more important. Father, thank you Thank you. I don't understand how you could possibly be willing, given given the sinfulness of man, the depravity of man, I don't begin to understand how you could be willing to send your, your son in whom there is not a spot of sinfulness, who knew, knew no sin. I, ha, I have no comprehension of how you could bring yourself to be willing to send him to die for us. I think if it were me, I would have said, forget the bunch. I'll start over. But Father, you are a God of mercy and compassion and we praise you for it. We praise you for it. Do not let us lose sight of forgiveness. Do not let us succumb to the temptations and the whispers of the enemy who will try to pull us away from that knowledge and overwhelm our senses with with a sense of woe is me look what I've done Father cause us to look to Jesus when those whispers come and say rain on that thought I know I'm forgiven and let that be what pushes us constantly Amen